So, hello, and thank you very much for downloading the Trap One podcast. Today, there are three physical podcasters, and the three are one. Wandering in on the time winds from across the garden of the universe, trying not to ripple the skin on anyone's custard, they are the Trap One trundling fact machine, hoping his memory wafers hold up for the recording and he can get some orders. It's the one and only J9, Jason Miller. Yay! Next, desperate to change his pyjamas and find something to do in this recording other than toss a coin, it's Frederick Gregory. And finally, resplendent in red, trying to avoid the Time Lords, and certainly the noblest of us all, it's Denise de Veratralunda Sutton. <laughs> and then there's me, Sivik, the captain of this ship. And I'm just glad we're finally getting something done. <laughs> now, as you may have guessed by now, we've come together in a great big white void to talk about the Stephen Gallagher rewrite of the John Lydecker novelization of the season 18 masterpiece that is Warrior's Gate. So let's get to it before the backblast backlash bounces back and destroys everything. So, J9, you covered the original novelization on episode 67 of your side hustle, Doctor Who Literature podcast. Um, what do you make of this new old version? Well, first, Cy, I've got to congratulate you for being able to do that entire intro in one breath without any stumbles. That was a very impressive bit of podcast narration. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I covered this with a friend of the Trap One podcast, Adam Clegg, several months ago. And I'm here because I am very protective of Warrior's Gate. I think it's one of – season 18 is pretty much my favorite TV season that is not season seven, and I am very possessive of six of the seven stories that year, Warrior's Gate being one of them. I like the Warrior's Gate Lidecker novelization from the early 1980s because it actually adds a lot of context to the TV episodes, and it gives nice sci-fi explanations for some of the things that were kind of hand-waved away on television. This is the go set a watchman of Warrior's Gate. So dipping into my literary toolbox, about eight years ago, it was announced that they had discovered a rough draft of To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Harper Lee had submitted the original draft in the 1950s, and it was rejected by the publisher, and she vowed never to ever let it see the light of day until she started to lose her faculties and an unscrupulous estate representative released the the book to big public fanfare, calling it a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird, which it was not. It was the original draft of the story. And as it turns out, it never should have seen the light of day. It was not very good. And the rewrite was much, much, much better. This Warrior's Gate, uh, the Stephen Gallagher novelization, is the rough draft of what Warrior's Gate would have been. This was based on the original script that he submitted that was heavily rewritten by script editor Christopher H. Bidmead, who's a favorite over on Doctor Who Literature, and director (laughs) Paul Joyce, who is a favorite of all Doctor Who fans of goodwill. So this is a novelization that Gallagher wrote under the Lidecker name of his original script, and it was famously rejected by John Nathan Turner because it didn't have too much relation to the eventual TV production. 
So he saved the missing bits and he put it back together for the target audiobook range probably within the last five years. So what we are reading now is the brand new novelization of a five-year-old audio based on a 40-year-old manuscript. If any Doctor Who story has gone through the gateway and been fractured in time and is living in multiple time streams simultaneously, like the Daryl's Feast, this is that book. And as we'll discuss over the next several hours, this is an enjoyable <laughs> book because Gallagher is a great writer, but it is not the Warrior's Gate that we know and love from television in many critical respects. So it's an interesting look back at what Gallagher did, but it is, for me, not a replacement for the original, which itself is not an original, but rather a rewrite. Yeah, it's it's a sort of fascinating bit of archaeology, really, isn't it? Of Because um, he said he he had the original version, but he only had printouts of it and this was some i think this is somewhere in his his archive or his notes and he's managed to sort of piece together the original version of the of the novelization that he wrote from that and then reassembled it and this then became the um audiobook version as you said and now the book so it gives us a real glimpse of what the story might have been like if his original version had made it to screen. And from that point of view, it's quite fascinating. And we don't often get that in sort of book form sort of at this point. So what did you think, Denise? Well, it was one of those things. Um, Mark was very kind and he sent me his review copy of it. And so, and it arrived just as I was leaving for work. So I opened it on the train and started reading it on the train. Now, I probably hadn't read the novelization in like 35 years. And so I started reading it. And as soon as the text began to deviate, I started to get the dissonance. <laughs> because <laughs> he, obviously, I had read it and digested it many times as a teenager. And so the rhythm was still there. It's like when you, it's like a remastered album. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, that's not quite right. But um, so I was quite harsh on it at first, but it grew on me. As the narrative progressed and you saw what he was trying to do with the character progression and obviously the characters, particularly Packard, very different to the on-screen Packard, who was, of course, played by the brilliant, is it Kenneth Cope? Yep, Kenneth Cope was yeah, yes. Packard. So, you know, with, who is a comic genius. So, obviously, the character of Packard is not a comic genius. Um, so, yeah, it grew on me, and I it gained greater and greater respect for it as I continued through the book. So, Fraser... You always have opinions. What was your opinion on this um, one? I, I felt like a thorough reading this because I read the original um, version um, and the, the, the John Lydecker version, um, watched the series and then read the new novelization as I tend to do with these things. And the new novelization... So, spoilers for anyone that hasn't read it yet. We will be talking about it in depth. So, cover your ears if you want to read it uh, before I talk about it. Um, but the what struck us was the original novelization and the the new one are very similar to start with. In fact, you know, it was virtually paragraph for paragraph up until one particular point, and it's the point where 
um, the Doctor comes out of the TARDIS to meet with Rovik and his crew rather than um, Romana doing that. <clears throat> and I thought that was a very whiplash moment. You know, it was all of us, you know, going along thinking, oh, this is, you know, virtually the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's nothing different here. I don't know what he's on about. And then it hits you in the face. Like, it's it's different now and it continues being different. And looking back, I think it feels very much like um, it's a different version. It's, it's what if the Doctor left the TARDIS first? This is how the story would play out. It would come to the same end, but, you know, different things would happen. So you kind of feel like a thorough at that point looking at the different time streams and looking at the different futures um, and taking it from there. So, you know, it is different. And I think that's, that's you know, what makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable because you you watch the television version, which we're all very familiar with. You read the, the novelization, which you're very familiar with. So this story is kind of... Um, you know, ingrained with you, it's it's. But then it gets to a point where where things change, and that throws you. So it's it's not so much like a remastered album. It's as if the album's back to front. You know, the songs are are in a different order, and you know you you get used to when you're listening to an album, you get used to one song leading to another. And if you sort of play a different song from that album, third rather than than that, then it it kind of throws you a little bit. So, um, you know, that was my initial feeling. Um, I've read it, I've enjoyed it. I think there's um, you know, a, a lot to enjoy in both versions. Um, some things are better in the Lydecker version. Some better things are better in the Gallagher version. Some things are better in the TV version. Um, one thing I do have to pull up with this book, though, and and say I have a big, massive quibble with, is is the front. The front of the book. Um, if you look at the Lydecker version, you've got. Um, a beautiful bit of art there, which is um, Birok, or was it Laszlo? It's a Tharrell. It's Birok. Um, you know, there's a star field, there's a swirling nebula, there's the privateer taken off in the bottom right corner, and there's the gate in the middle. The gate is front and centre there. And, you know, Warrior's Gate is such a visual experience. Paul Joyce makes it such a feast for your eyes and part of that is the gate itself which is an absolute triumph of design and is completely missing from the front cover of the new version so i'm raging I'm not gonna lie um <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I really don't like coming down hard on people that have done work um, and tried the best and done and done some good work because for all it counts it's a beautiful cover you know it's got a lovely um you know, picture of, of of Tom Baker there. It's got a lovely Lala Ward as Romana, Birok's eyes. You know, it's got the privateer. It's got all that swirling, you know, Chris Achilles style gas. But where's the gate? Come on. Mm-hmm. That what? is not a fault of <clears throat> Stephen Gallagher, but it is. If you go to the original Target line, which ran for twenty years, they were constantly evolving in the way the covers looked. Because you started off with this Chris Achilleos photo collage format, or I guess collage, not photo collage. And then you evolve. You have different authors, different illustrators trying different types of covers. So then you move on to the Mike Little era, the Jeff Cummings era, the <clears throat> Andrew Skilleter era. You even had the photo covers for a couple of years when Peter Davison's agent would not allow any paintings of Peter Davison, but only photographs. And then you wind up with Alistair Pearson at the end. 
these target books are several years old now, and they're only doing the pastiche of the original Chris Achilleos cover. And <clears throat> I would like to see a little more dynamic evolution of the covers. We're just getting the same type of cover over and over again, whereas the original targets never rested on one particular kind of cover design. That's a little bit off topic as it relates to the text of Gallagher's novelization, but I would like to see different covers at this point. Well, absolutely. And it's not, and even Chris Achilleos' style changed and evolved before he left. So it was never all just one thing. And they were never just, uh, uh, target books were never a cohesive whole. They were always a jumble of eras and covers and cover styles. And that was what made them. Um, To go back to the novel, um, the thing that I found sort of most interesting and annoying in the new old version that we've got published here by Stephen Gallagher is how much Romana is sidelined in this Mm. version of the story. Because Warrior's Gate, being her last story, she gets a really strong showing in that story, as she should. And she is is well portrayed and and like you said Fraser that scene where she comes out of the TARDIS and confronts Rorvik for the first time shows her at one of her most doctory moments showing sort of following on from the line where she was um, fully qualified when she arrived and no longer the apprentice and although he he does interesting things with Romana in this this version she's not written quite as strongly and she's not the protagonist that she is in the, in the TV version and the original um, novelization of Warrior's Gate. And I think that's a bit of a shame, really. Although there is a lovely passage where she's talking to the Doctor when they're behind the mirrors, where, she's, where she has that moment of realisation that she's not going to go back to Gallifrey and she doesn't have to do this. And that's a really nice sort of novel piece of writing that maybe you couldn't portray on TV, so you do it differently. But I found that sort of the most galling sort of part of this, that both well, Ad, um, Romana and Adric really are both very much sidelined, so that the Doctor is really, really foregrounded in this. And that wouldn't fit Bidmead's um, version of the series, where they want the Doctor slightly more in the background. But here, he is right at the centre of the story and all the big beats of the story are his. Yes, that's completely right. Romana gets really short-changed in this version. And um, I think maybe Adric not so much. We get quite a little bit of his internal dialogue and, okay, wandering around with a coin. There's not really very much (laughs) that you can do with that, but... uh, (laughs) Even Olivier would have struggled with that one. But, um, yeah, it's uh, for Romana not to have her wonderful scene with the privateer crew, for Romana not to be the one that goes to the ship with them. Yeah, that's that's a real shame. And I don't really understand. I guess it could be just that... Um, Stephen Gallagher didn't really understand the show that he was writing for at the time. He hadn't seen it, and obviously season 18 is a very different direction to the previous couple of seasons, but uh, maybe he just didn't get it. And I think there's a very good reason why Romana is not foregrounded in the book, and that's because this was not scripted as her departure story. If you look at the 
season 18 Blu-ray, the BD-ROM materials contain Gallagher's final submission. <clears throat> Romana does not leave at the end. So when he was putting this story together in concept, it was not meant to be a story that shows how Romana has graduated from her apprenticeship and is ready to take on the universe. The last line of the rehearsal script, the line, she'll be superb, which fits Romana's exit beautifully. It's there, but it refers to Birok. Birok is the one who will be superb going to save his people, and Romana stays with the TARDIS crew. The decision to write out Lala Ward mid-season comes from the production office, and it was later imposed upon the script, and they saved the economy of the typewritten rehearsal script page by keeping the line, she'll be superb, but having it refer to Romana rather than Virok. So, according to what Stephen Gallagher said on the Who Corner of Corner podcast a couple of months ago, he novelized his original scripts almost before he got commissioned by Target. He was that eager to write them. So he probably wrote the original version of this novelization not knowing that Romano was going to be leaving, and he had to shoehorn all those changes in at the last minute. So that's probably why Romano has a small part to play, because as originally proposed, this was never going to be her story. And that shows you in stark relief the value that Christopher H. Bidmead adds to the script during his one and only year as script editor, because you can see that he changes a lot of character arcs, and it's not just Romana. He changes a lot of the character journeys throughout the story to give them more prominence, because you have to give the actors something to do. So everything great about Romana's performance in the story on TV owes to her acting and Christopher H. Bidmead's rewrites. So that's another reason why this version of the book is a little bit jarring, because it doesn't have the things that we love the most about the television story. What I'll say about that is, um, you know, I agree, you know, Romana has less to do in the Gallagher novel. Um, however, what she has to do in the Lydecker novel, I found, was essentially be Sarah jane She gets strapped to a chair and she gets tortured. So... You know, would I like to see Romana be a bit more foregrounded and get a bit more of the action? Yes, I would. Am I happy that she doesn't sit in a chair for, you know, a quarter of a novel and be tortured? Yes, I am. I think there's <laughs> there's ups and downs with this book throughout. I think, um, you know, that that's what I found. You know, this, this divergent path, this this sort of like turn left, as it were, um, version of Warrior's Gate. Um, I found there is, you know, lots of bits I'm happy with that I prefer to the Lydecker book and there's bits that I prefer to in the in the Gallagher book and there's bits that I prefer on the television. I mean, essentially, there's there's three physical versions of Warrior's Gate now and the three are and one. And the three are one. You know, if, if we add one, you know. The three are not one. <laughs> yes. You know, there's, there's bits from each version I would quite like to mash together to make the fourth ultimate um, Warrior's Gate. Mm, but, director's yeah. cut. But you oh, know, it's essentially yeah. so. If we just cross the striations <laughs> of the yes. timelines, we could make that happen. <laughs> oh, I'll edit it together. It's fine. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. work it out somehow. But um, in terms of Adric, Adric, I think gets better served in the Gallagher novelisation. Um, he gets just as much to do in the Lydecker novel as he does on the screen, which is essentially wander around the void. Um, I think. It's interesting that the, the Lydecker novelisation tops into what was going on between Romana, not Romana, Lala Ward and Matthew Waterhouse. 
Um, there's some scenes in there where Ramana is quite deliberately cold and uh, abrupt with Adric, like when they're climbing into the the, the privateer, um, and he offers her a hand, and she just brushes him off. And that was like very reminiscent of what's happening on screen, where those two actors are not enjoying each other's company, and you know um, that clearly shows on the screen as well. Um, but I liked the version here where um, Adric actually gets to interact with Burok. Um, when he's in the void and you know he's he's lost his coin you know and Burok's like the coin isn't the the issue and my, you know that was really um, a nice little passage there um, yes that was a know, good that's, scene I think I that's that. the kind of yeah. stuff that I feel that you know Christopher Bidmead was always going for with the show that sort of poetry um, behind maths and behind science and all like that doesn't always come out on screen, so I was really glad that 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 little bit was in the book there, because um, it really, it really stuck out to me. I want to come back to Chekhov's torture chair for a moment. <laughs> Basic rules of drama: if you show a torture chair in part one, one of our heroes has to be strapped into it in part two. When you're building a set in a cramped TV studio, every bit of the set has to have plot utility. So in the Gallagher novelization, that torture chair is shown at the very beginning of the story, and then it's never used again. You have to use it on television. That's why somebody has to be strapped into it. And it wound up being Romana, because the Doctor had to be somewhere else in the plot at the same time. Chekhov's not always right. You don't always have to use his equipment. I think from Lala Ward's point of view, she would have preferred if Adric got strapped into the chair. Remember, she is a Shakespearean actor who had just left Patrick Stewart's Royal Shakespeare Company, and Matthew Waterhouse was in like his only second professional job ever and didn't know how to behave on set. So she detested him, and it's very clear on TV, which is one of the few detriments to the story. I think he deserves a little more of the benefit of the doubt than she gave him. But yeah, none of that is in well, the Gallagher absolutely. novelization because that was all subtext that came during rehearsal. Gallagher wouldn't have known about that when he did his original script. Well, what he does do, I mean, although it wasn't you know intended for Romana's departure, he really does do it well, I feel. Um, the television version, I think, is is one of these departures that just comes out of nowhere. There is a little bit of foreshadowing in the first episode um, when they're talking about going back to Gallifrey and Romana's clearly not happy and she does seem to take it out on Adric um, when they're alone in the TARDIS. But I think, um, Sai, that, that passage that you mentioned is another highlight of the Gallagher book. Um, it's one of the ones I've actually stuck a little ticket in to remind us of, um, you know, because it is just such a beautiful, again, there's poetry to it. There's actual, um, you know, just a lovely way of, of Romana figuring out what character, you know what she has to do, not through direct, directly being told, but just by the actions of the other characters who are, you know, kind of influencing her and teaching her, and it's it's just lovely, lovely. One of the things I, I felt was m- missing in all the ver- all the prose versions of this story is one of my favourite things in the TV version, which is. And I don't know whether this is maybe a bit of business that was worked out by Tom Baker or maybe something that Christopher H. Bidmead sort of put into the script or Paul Joyce because it's quite visual. But it was the Doctor picking up the goblet and writing it in episode one and then filling it with the wine and knocking it over in anger in part three, which 
is a really lovely and wonderful piece of symbolism. Um, and I was sorry to see that missing in, in both versions because I think that's such a, a great piece of, of imagery. And, um, it's just, and again, sort of emphasizes the time differences and no one ever comment. Uh, it's not commented on in the story at all. You're supposed to remember that this has happened earlier on and then see the doctor is the one who's knocked it over when the Gundans just before the Gundan attack and the ax coming in and all of that. It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole story. I love that bit on TV. And that's the biggest detriment to the Gallagher novelization because that banquet scene and the gun, the Gundan attack through the gateway, the mirrors and the part through cliffhanger. None of that is in the Gallagher book, book because Gallagher didn't write it. That was all Christopher H. Bidmead and Paul Joyce. So there is an analogous version of the part one cliffhanger in this book. There is a version of the part two cliffhanger in this book. The part three cliffhanger does not appear at all, which begs the question, what was Gallagher's original part three cliffhanger? So one of our favorite parts of the story, the whole banquet sequence and the part three cliffhanger, not in this novelization in the slightest. No, I have no idea what he might have done at the end of part three. That's really interesting, isn't it? It is. And it, the, the problem is not just that you get rid of that scene. The problem is you get rid of all of the stuff that goes around it and before that scene, which is essentially the explanation that the Tharrells were the masters before they were the slaves. You know, the whole, you know, the weak enslave themselves um, part, which is in the the Rydecker book in the television version, which is key to getting a bit of sympathy for the Tharrell. Uh, or but it's not, because you feel sympathy for the Tharrells because they're slaves and they are strapped to the torture chairs. Um what it adds is 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 depth and you know shades of grey. So should we feel sorry for the Tharrells because they were this all conquering, all enslaving race, um, who have now found themselves you know, as the slaves, should we be sitting going, well, karma's a bitch, so I'm going to leave you to it, or should we then be feeling the sympathy? <laughs> With the Gallagher book, it's a lot more black and white. It's a lot more sort of like, yes, Thowles are done wrong by, you know, the privateer crew are, are the bad guys. Um, it's more subtle with the other versions. Um, so that that's, you know, a big flaw of the book for me, missing all of that sort of um, motivation for the Tharrells and, and whatnot. That's, that is a, a massive miss. Yes, and we also miss, again, one of my favourite lines um, where um, Romana works out why we should trust Birok with the line, because he was running, uh, which, again, I always, always loved. And again, mm. so, so it's sort of an interesting glimpse of what what. Bidmead added and Paul yeah. Joyce added to this story, I think. And again, it's just that, yeah, just really interesting to see whose perspective we've got here and um, who is the author of the TV version, Warrior's Gate. And actually, as we know, it turned out to be three different people with three different, slightly different visions all hitting together and actually out of that chaos came something that was was brilliant and different to anything else. 
Yes, absolutely. Every time it comes around on my rewatches, I always try and get David to watch it with me because it is an outstanding piece of television in its own right, whether it's Doctor Who or any other series. To put something like that on screen is absolutely incredible. It's a work of art. It absolutely is. I think um, it's not just Paul Joyce. Um, you know, it's not just the writing, the direction, what he's done with the scenes beyond the mirror, the way that he's um, used those still photos. Is it Leeds Castle that he used? Um, yes. You know, mm -hmm. going out with these... No, no, it's not Leeds it's Cowes Castle, Castle yes. this time in, yeah, in yeah, Wales. So yeah. he goes out with his, I think it was his girlfriend at the time, who was a photographer, and they take a series of black and white still photos of the grounds, which they then becomes, you know, beyond the mirror. So there's that element. But Peter Howell as well. The, the music mm. is just so mm -hmm. fitting and of its time and timeless and just wonderful. The whole experience. It really is, because at that point, I think they're using the same synthesizers as bands like Visage and Ultravox were using. And, you know, it's it's reflected in the music that was in the charts at the time that the, uh, the programme was broadcast as well. And it's really... It's extra haunting and extra poignant for that reason for me, definitely. And I always say this is um, sort of the most new romantic looking <laughs> story of of Do uh, maybe other than Kinder, um, where and and Snake Dance perhaps, where it it's really influenced by the fashions of the time. So the great big pirate shirts that the Farrells yeah. are wearing are like Adam Ant is wearing. Or Steve Strange in the in the um, Fade to Grey video and all of that and the vid and the video effects because the early music videos were all videotape so they're using all the same Quantel effects and you've got this disorienting sense that this is like like a three minute pop video expanded to an hour and a half and you're you're immersed in this world that isn't quite like any other world in Doctor Who other than maybe the void at the start of the mind robber. Um, but we're in this place that is where, and it's actually well described in the Gallagher novel where it's not where the doc, the doctor's walking along and he's sort of disorientated and doesn't know whether he's going up or down. And then suddenly realizes that actually he is going on a linear path and he's not, the void isn't mm. like necessarily a void void there's something there something physical that is is there and then there, obviously there's atmosphere there's a sense of gravity you know which yes. way is up yes and he does do really well with the descriptions of what happens to the void when the privateer takes off to to um sort of maneuver for the back blast and the way that suddenly it's like the void is is like um a balloon that's burst where it is contracting and the physical laws are changing because of that is, is really nicely portrayed. Another fascinating change between this, the rough draft, and the TV version, which Lyadecker later novelizes, Birok has only a minuscule part to play in this rough draft. He shows up at the beginning. He has that one brief encounter with Adric in, in the void and then really doesn't show up again. Laszlo gets the majority of the... Farrell's work on television that's entirely inverted because David Weston who had been on Doctor Who before in the 1960s is cast 
as Birok, and he's a pretty big guest star. Jeremy Giddens, who was 24 years old, it was only his second television, gets the role of Laszlo. He ended up having a huge television career much later on, but in 1980 is still early days for him. So Laszlo gets virtually nothing to do on television, and Birok gets a lot of big revelatory moments, especially in parts three and four. Birok on TV is kind of the doctor's spiritual guide on the other side of the mirror, and he is the doctor's host at the feast, and they are having their own side conversation while the feast is going on. And he is the one who tells the doctor, do nothing, it is already done. And that sparks the really nifty climax on TV, which is also not in the book. We'll talk about that later. But Birok in the book is, is basically defined by his absence, and Laszlo gets a lot more to do. I think, having seen it first, I prefer the TV version. I like what Birok has to do more than what Laszlo has to do, because Birok is the dynamic figure, and Laszlo is kind of a junior apprentice. So I can see why that was changed for the television and for the Lidecker book. Yes, because um, Birok is actually their leader, according to the Gallagher novel. So, uh, And um, Laszlo was very surprised to learn that he was even still alive. I did like um, the way that Birok refers to himself in the third person all the way through. Uh, like Again, almost as if he doesn't quite exist in any timeline. He's always sort of outs- an outsider wherever he is. And I thought that was, was quite a nice touch. Mm. I did. Yes. I did like Laszlo in the in the Gallagher book as well. Um, I mean, obviously the end, like you said, Jason, is, is different. So when it comes to um, them trying to stop the backblast, um, the in the Lydecker in the television, it's the Doctor versus Rovik until he realizes actually do nothing, do the right kind of nothing. Um, but it's Laszlo that he's up against. Um, so I like that element of of the Doctor realising not Laszlo, um, because Laszlo is is portrayed as equally an enigmatic and, you know, wise figure in in the Gallagher book. He's, you know, calling out Romana for being defeatist, and Romana's like, no, I'm being scientific, and, you know, there's he has that sort of mysticism about him, um, you know, and at the end, when he's he's like bearing his claws, you kind of get a real sense of you know these thowels are are dangerous, which you don't get in the other versions. So again, it's it, it's ups and downs, you know. It's there really is just you know enough, lots of things to like in both versions, for me. And that's a really good point about Rorvik because he's the principal guest star on TV, Clifford Rose. It's a terrific, terrific, intense performance. If you're going to have a character like that who's the principal guest star, again, for dramaturgical reasons, he has to have a climax with the Doctor at the end of Part 4, which is exactly what the TV gives us, the struggle in the power room. It's really well staged. You know, Rorvik is shot from below. He's stepping on the Doctor's foot. There's the business with the clipboard. None of that is in the Gallagher book, which, again, is the rough draft. It's bid me to decide, no, Rorvik has to have a part to play in the climax, which Gallagher hadn't done. The biggest thing that Rorvik has to do in the climax of the Gallagher book is banning Aldo and Waldo from the bridge, which (coughs) doesn't happen on television because it's totally irrelevant to the plot. And then Aldo and Waldo become Aldo and Royce, and they're given a much bigger role on TV. So those parts are made more integral to the plot 
after Gallagher was finished with the rough draft. So it's another thing that I prefer about the TV version. Yeah, and Denise, you said you liked what they did with Packard. Um, do you want to talk yeah. a bit about that? Well, I mean, you get Kenneth Cope in there and immediately you recognise his voice from Randall and Hopkirk and, uh, you know, he's he's using comedy. He gets some of the lines that are given to other people in the book, such as um, when he's looking at the readings and Rorvik's asking him for it and he just gestures, what do you want me to say? You know, just absolutely perfect comedy. And he's the person who has to deal with canine following him back to the privateer and rather than Lane, who is a solid character, but he's he hasn't got the energy and the dynamic comedic power. He's more of the straight guy in, in their setup. You know, you've got the authoritarian, you've got Packard, who's very bright, but he's also funny. And then you've got Lane, who does the grunt work with the mass detector and all the rest of it. And... Yeah, I always look forward to seeing Packard. Uh, <laughs> and the scene with um, Romana outside the TARDIS, of course, and uh, they're asking her if she's seen a Farrell, and she says, would that be a sort of leonine ectomorph? And then she stands on tiptoe <laughs> to look at his balding page and says, with a lot of hair. You know, absolute comic perfection and genius and... I don't know if they figured that out between them or if it just sort of happened, but yeah, she's showing us how it's done <laughs> in that scene. And uh, yeah, he doesn't mind, you know. I mean, he's, you know, he was wearing a wig in Randland Hopkirk, <laughs> so he's been a balding gentleman for a very long time. So I guess he was used to it by that point. But I think um, in the in the Galaga book, the the character of Lane becomes a lot more simplistic and a lot more sort of stereotypical i think he becomes you know the um he's a bit like the gan isn't he the he's like the, the the muscle <laughs> but he's you know he's he's not as bright as the other so he comes to the butt of the jokes and whatnot and there is a bit more there's a lot more characters in the gallagher novelization um than we get in the in the rydecker and on screen um, i'm trying to remember what was the name of the guy that brings the Nestor's the the cowardly one, but there's even a guy that turns up just to drop the sandwiches off, isn't there? Pie Man Joe, yeah, and he's called Pie Man Joe. Yeah, you can't do that on television. Yeah. You can't have a named character who's only in one scene. You've got to have a much more efficient use of your limited cast and small budget. Yeah. So on TV, you have Rorvik, Packard, Lane, Sagan, Aldo, and Royce, which is already a lot, but there's like. Ten. There's four extra characters in the book: Nestor, Joss, Dulles, and Pie Man Joe. You can see why they were cut from the TV because there's no room for four yeah. extra <laughs> speaking parts. That's just Christopher <laughs> H. Bigney being efficient, working within the Doctor Who budget. A couple of extras do pop up um, when they're kind of they are going in into the um, into the the banqueting hall. I, you know, I did notice when I rewatched. You know, there is some. Some dark head extras lurking around there who probably, you know, Pie Man Joe is one of those, you know, one of those yeah, extras can can claim to be, I was in Doctor Who and I was Pie Man Joe. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in, in terms of the television version, my favourite characters from the um, the privateer are um, Aldo and Royce. You know, I think they, they work really well. They are very mm. um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstein from that. From or the two tramps in waiting yes, for Dodo. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They are sort of yeah. this little chorus mm. 
um, that kind of sit there and you know comment on on what's going on and mm. you know give us a little extra you know perspective on what's going on in there. Um, the you know Alderman Waldo in the book again just comedy relief, but it doesn't really work. You know what works with the um, television version is that comedy element to the crew. In the Gallagher novelization, mm. I found them more sort of like blue collar people, you know, the private, yeah, you know, and this is one of the, the good things about this book, the Gallagher book I found is how much more we get of the privateer crew, not just how many numbers we get, but we get a lot more depth of them. You know, we, we understand a lot more about this ship. This ship has been bought off someone else. It's not their technology. It's, you know, there's a very, um, and I hate to say it, Douglas Adams-esque passage, which explains how this ship was sent into the future and then the retro engineered what's going to sell and oh i love that part oh the minotaur yeah. stuff yeah yeah, That's a, yeah that was very, very good very yes. good there um so we get all of that stuff we get the this this idea of the ship itself we get the night a really good idea of the crew next year they are very sort of just blue collar you know rovik's in charge but it's, it's only because he's the manager he's very middle manager guy we've all worked with people like rovik across all three versions um in the television in the lidecker book there's a lot more comedy element to them and that brings again that sense of you know who are we supposed to be cheering for on this one is it the thowels who used to be the slavers or is it the slavers now but we don't think of them as slavers now because we're laughing at them and we're you know, you know, they are, you know, comedy characters that we are sort of, you know, enjoying watching rather than being portrayed as what they actually are, which is, you know, slavers. They're slavers. Yeah, they're just earning a living. That's what the uh, discontinuity mm. guide refers to as the banal villainy of the privateer crew, mm. whose villainy stops for lunch. Well, exactly. They're a hungry bunch. <laughs> Union rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all blue yep. collars. Everything stops for dinner. Yep. Everything stops. Yep. Get your dinner yep. break. Pie Man Joe is probably the shop steward. One thing I liked about the Gallagher book is that there's this running subplot. What are Aldo and Waldo doing with the garbage? Because the ship doesn't <laughs> yes. eject its garbage into space. That's unsanitary. So somebody figures out at the end they're just moving the garbage back and forth. You can see why that was cut from television because it doesn't fit the tone of the story Bidmeet is telling. But it, it is funny. That's yep. one of the few things that I liked about the book that didn't make it to the eventual TV draft. That And I loved the moment where it's the end of the ship and the ship's about to explode and they're still emptying the waste paper bins mm. on, the, on the flight deck on the bridge. And yeah, I just thought, yeah, that's exactly what would happen at the end of the world. Yeah. Someone would still be there collecting your rubbish at the very last <laughs> minute. I mean, they do all spend a lot of time focusing on what could be argued is not the right stuff. Like um, in, I mean, it's mentioned in the uh, in the original novelization. I don't think it really comes out very strongly in the TV show, but the fact that the mass detector detects that the TARDIS is larger on the inside than it is on the outside. And in the Gallagher novel, they spend a lot of time figuring this out. There's there's whole scenes where they're just running the, putting the data into the computer and trying to think, oh, no, that can't be right, must have made a mistake. They spend a lot of time focusing on the wrong thing. And maybe that's to take their mind off the fact that what they're doing is a 
terrible way to make a living. Good point. But they all die at the end. Well, well they do they? Do. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but, do uh, they, though, in the Galagabu? Because yes, they all pop out as ghosts at the end, don't they? But then the Gundams well, come yeah, and massacre but, them. Yeah. So it's kind of... Uh, they die, but then they become uh, dead again. So it's... Uh, which is a bit of a weird thing. I mean, uh, just as well the characters are less sympathetic in the Gallagher novel, because... Uh, yeah. You, you know, it's a bit more clear because the end, their, the end that they meet is somewhat more glossed over in the uh, TV show and the novel. You don't realise there's quite a high body count yeah. in the story. And the end, I, I, the ending of the the story in the Gallica version is is really interesting. I, I always like the bit about the Doctor, um, what he does in the TARDIS to get them into end space and mm. his cleverness that gets them there. And how, although it's it looks difficult, it's actually quite simple and works. And it's and he the way he quickly maps the mathematical mm. image of the whole of E space to flip him into N space is just and he does that in in seconds almost. And and like if they'd known this was this was the way out, then yeah, yeah. It, it's good. And again, it I always loved the idea that you've got. A negative and positive universe and that the intersection is zero makes yeah. absolute absolute sense i mean if i ever found myself in that situation i would be like yeah just put all the coordinates at zero and see what happens you know obviously <laughs> but anyway again that was like a douglas adams thing wasn't it it's like uh, when they wanted to build the infinite improbability drive all they had to work out was exactly how improbable it was and you turn <laughs> it on <laughs> and there it <laughs> <You> is <know. laughs> yeah, there you got it so um yes that that is a nice thing because the tv show doesn't make it really that clear how they get out of there and back into end space again because i mean the the void that they're on that's in end space anyway it seems to be doesn't it and then when they go through the mirrors that's back in e-space again because that's where you know they don't the doctor doesn't want to leave k9 there because it's not his universe Mm -hmm. so but at the same time you have to get from the void into end space proper somehow Yes. It's, Denise, it's all... I can see the puzzled look on Denise's <laughs> face while she's trying to work this all out, which is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm... there's three universes, <laughs> I, I, Denise. I'm a puzzled Three physical person. universes and the three are one. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, although Warrior's Gate is the largest part of this book, we do have two bonus um stories that are added in for this sort of following the exploits of romana after warrior's gate and so first of all we have the kairos ring which was originally um a bbc audio exclusive adventure so written specifically to be read aloud and read beautifully by stephen pacey um, a couple of years back and so we get to see romana's apprenticeship um, under the Farrells. And again, we have a big starring role for Laszlo. So what did we make of that? I loved it, but I want to point out first, because I have to be pedantic before I deliver the praise, it is a different continuity from Warrior's Gate on TV. Warrior's Gate on TV ends with Nirmana and K9 going through the other side of the mirror into E-Space 
to work for Birok, who says, We have much work to do. My people are enslaved on many planets. Canine is going to rebuild the TARDIS because he has all the necessary schedules. And Birok says, We need a Time Lord. So Ramana and Canine and Birok travel in a rebuilt TARDIS to rescue all of the Tharals from slavery. That's the TV continuity. Kairos Ring is written based on the original Gallagher draft slash Gallagher novelization continuity, where it's Ramana and Laszlo traveling without a TARDIS, and K-9 has been moved via AI protocols from the Tin Dog to a self-driving car in 21st century London. <laughs> that's, that's the nitpicking out of the way. I love the story itself. I love the idea of all these people from different time streams all helping the Tharals fight the same war, winding up in a sort of under-British library with Ramana in a doctorish role. And there's a really poignant bit involving uh, an American Union, the North, woo, Civil War soldier. So I thought the novel, I thought that particular short story was just absolutely lovely, even though, of course, it is not the TV continuity. But really, who cares? It's just a good story. It is a good story. I mean, who's to say that they wouldn't necessarily not have to, that they don't have to use the TARDIS all of the time? And so, yeah, I liked it very much. And it was very poignant, the character of Joshua and sort of not realising exactly what's happened to him. It's very poignant indeed. Yeah, I I enjoyed it as well. Um, You know, I think in terms of you know, the Ramana getting around, you know, that, that gateway is on the intersection of A space and N space, so there's nothing to say the gateway can't travel across both universes, maybe isn't even in a S space or Z space or whichever space you want to see. Um, you know, I think the idea is the, the gateway leads everywhere, and that's how the Tharals, you know, were able to enslave everyone because they could literally go everywhere. It's like that Star Trek episode, isn't it, where they have gates like that? In that Star Trek episode, it's called mm. Bob Diverton. Um is that the city on the edge of Possibly. forever? Is that the one? Possibly. Yeah. I can't remember exactly. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, for me, the the real joy of it was this this thought of Romana setting up um, a team under the library. Um, I mean, Simon, you're a librarian. Have you got webbed hands and claw fingers? <laughs> No, 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 we're, we're okay. I'm just yep. double-checking just to make sure. So we're, we're <laughs> all right. Not but yet. Yeah, um, there, there was a great line in it that um, I even took a photo of because it made me made me chuckle, and I thought I need to use this in my in my everyday life, and I'm just going to find it now. For questions beyond reason, you need a librarian, and that is absolutely true. As a librarian, I can say that is absolutely spot on. The full quarter minute, you know, a library can answer any question within reason, and for questions. Mm-hmm. Without reason, you need a librarian. You need a librarian. Which is fantastic. <laughs> just this idea of Ramana setting up some sort of um, space unit, you know. Um, I'm, I'm trying to, it's like an Avengers, isn't it? Of just, mm. you know, getting people from all, you know, time and space together to solve this problem. I, I would love to see that expanded. I'm not going to lie. I think, you know, obviously they're brought together to. Um, to fight the Schler or whatever they're called, however you pronounce that unpronounceable word. Um, but I would love to see that, you know, that could be a spin-off, that could be a spin-off for, for RTD. 
um, and Disney. And a unit Black Archive yeah. crossover as well, since the practically uh, absolutely. Um, that I think that idea has got real legs, and I really enjoyed that element of it. All the rest was great as well. You know, like I said, I loved that character of um, that tragic character of Joshua and his mm. his little Samaritan girlfriend, bless them. Um, in, in Romana being at the centre of, of everything, you know, Laszlo comes and goes, but it's Rita Romana in there doing everything. Yeah. And, yeah, and it made my dream come true of having a canine sat <laughs> which I would absolutely <laughs> adore. <laughs> that would make driving round absolutely fabulous. And I, I can't believe they haven't made John Leeson record every name in the UK mm. just so that we could have this. At the end of the road, turn right, master. Exactly. Who wouldn't like that? I also love that the <laughs> ring in the short story is called the Kairos ring because we've seen this in Doctor Who before. Here, here's a quick quiz for you guys. What is the Doctor Who story where a time war develops and it becomes the Time Lords fighting the Daleks and the Doctor sort of becomes the war president leading Gallifrey in a fight against the Daleks and he decides in a moment of despair that he has to destroy everything, both sides, and then a character called the Moment shows up and tells him there's a better way. Which Doctor Who story is that? That is the Infinity Doctors. Close. It is the Quantum Archangel by Craig Hinton, ah. later adapted for television in an uncredited rewrite by uh, Stephen Moffat. But in the Quantum Archangel, the moment is called Kairos, because Kairos is the Greek word for the moment. And that same concept is used here, by Stephen Gallagher, working independently from Craig Hinton and Stephen Moffat. Interesting. There we go. <laughs> I did not know any of that. Me neither. Mm -hmm. I thought you were all going to say Day of the Doctor, but... <laughs> <laughs> this is why we have J9 with us. Exactly. Affirmative, Master. <laughs> <laughs> and we also get a lovely little coda at the end in the little Book of mm. Fates where the, the paths of the Doctor and Romana, a future Romana in a different incarnation, I believe, um, meet again one last time in, again, a different continuity to all the other versions where Romana and the Doctor <laughs> have met again one last time. <laughs> well, this is the eighth Doctor, isn't it? Meeting, yes. Yeah. Meeting Romana at a, um, at a travelling fair on the coast of, coast of Northwest. England, this is where we need Mark McManus, he lives there. Um, uh -huh. Outside of Whitehaven. Um, and, you know, coming across the um, the refugees from the Time War, they are, you know, using the the Warriors Gate to rescue people who are collateral damage to the Time War. And, and that was that was the angle that really impressed me on that story. You know, we, we have Time War tales, and I think Russell when he invented the Time War, meant it to be something that we don't look at, you know, that we don't go into any depth with, that we kind of skirt around and, you know, mention in under our breath, you know, not something that it's like Big Finish have done where they go dive straight into it and, um, you know, tell us tales of battles and whatnot. So that element of just the periphery of the Time War, um, you know, the people caught up in the the destruction, you know, on the outskirts again, I think that's the that's the best way to come at the time war, if you if you want to address it, and that really worked well for me in that story. I just thought it was so sweet, but it 
seemed very unlikely to me that Romana, of all people, would disguise herself as a fortune teller. But it was a lovely little scene. In the books of the 2000s, there was this very pessimistic view of companions. And basically, a different companion is killed off in almost every book uh, between the late 90s and the mid-2000s. So it gets to the point in the Eighth Doctor Adventures where Romana regenerates into the Louise Brooks incarnation of Romana, who becomes the evil president of Gallifrey in Ancestor Cell and the the Paul Cornell book, what was it, Shadows of Avalon. This is a much more optimistic look at Romana's future, and the Eighth Doctor has done very well considering that Gallagher has not written for him before. And there's this really nice moment where they talk about Adric and they remember Adric in a very sweet way, which the real Al Ward would <laughs> never do. <laughs> and I like the fact that the Book of Fate is called the Oraculum, which also shows up in the Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man. So, again, it's it's short. It's basically you know a scene rather than a story proper. But I, I just really, really, really enjoyed it. Very high note to end the book. Yeah, and... I thought it was just really lovely that he wrote that specifically to go in in this book. So it's like a whole little the story of Romana, her leaving, her her um her next move, and then a final meeting with the Doctor, and it just all then feels like a bit of a hole because I was wondering sort of when the book was announced if they just put the Kairos ring in there. Be- just because it was a Gallagher BBC audio and it's a bit of an extra bonus. But actually, as a whole, it sort of all comes together. And then with the little book of fate sort of as the little coda at the end, it works brilliantly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this book was not what I expected at all. But uh, that's not a bad thing. And I really enjoyed those two stories because I'm not, I haven't read a lot of the other Doctor Who fiction out there and I'm not the greatest expert on big finish stories either but yeah I really really loved getting these as a little taster for what else is out there and what can be done in the world of Doctor Who literature which isn't fan literature you know (laughs) no this is a proper novelist writing being given his head and making what he will of of the story and the ideas that he had over 40 years ago. Yeah, and I think throughout, the prose is magnificent. Even at that very early stage of his career back in 1980, the prose is still fantastic, and there are some really lyrical and beautiful passages all the way through. And that's obviously something that has only got better with age. Yes, because it hasn't dated. It's very easy for somebody to put, like, snide little comments and parallels about the the world as it was at the time the novel was written and it's not like that it sits there as pure science fiction yep absolutely i'm still cross that he never put any chapters in that <laughs> 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 to this day of all the days where my mum would say you can read one chapter before bed and how am I supposed to judge where to stop in warrior's gate mum come <laughs> on stay up all night and read <laughs> the whole wait? book duh well, exactly. That's what I would have done, <laughs> given the choice. 
Well, don't you wait until the end of a paragraph coincides with the end of a page. That's what I do. Oh, see, I didn't think of that as a as an eight-year-old child whenever I was <laughs> reading this first. So. That's the way to do it. You've mm-hmm. got to have a system. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's not forget, uh, Stephen Gallagher wrote Terminus as well, so you can forgive him all his sins for that, Simon. Well, absolutely, because you know how much I love Terminus. I do Terminus. know how much you love Terminus. <laughs> <laughs> So, Fraser, how did you feel about it overall? Um, yeah, I enjoyed it um, overall. Like I say, um, it's it stands there as its own sort of thing, but it's still the same thing. It's just a different thing. It's it's very hard to describe, um, but I think, you know, it becomes part and parcel of the story now. You know, you have the TV version with its music, with its visuals, with its wonderful performance from Lala Ward, which just brings everything to life. Um, and Tom Baker as well. You know, you have the the Lidecker version, which, you know, really clarifies quite a lot of things. You know, it explains exactly what's happening with the time winds and the damage it's caused to the Doctor and Doctor's hand mm-hmm. and, and K9, why that's so poorly and what the Thowels are. You know, it, it really kind of clarifies the thowels and what the sh- that shimmering is and then you have the Gallagher version which gives you an alternate take you know like I said it's it's like the turn left of Warrior's Gate um, put them all three together and you've got a really um, good package you know the novel itself put those that novel with the, the Kairos ring and the little book of fate all together and you do get a very rounded experience so um, I'm, I'm really glad that I picked this one to to get in to talk about because it's it's there's a lot in it to enjoy just not the cover (laughs) (laughs) no the cover's lush well nothing is ever the cover is really nice i'm being really harsh because it is a really you know you know fantastically done cover those those likenesses of of tom and are are spot on and the privateer has a a fantastic design ship as well and that's on there it's just it's just just the gateway is the, yeah, yeah, is the key. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. And how about you, Jason? Again, to go back to my Ghost Set a Watchman example earlier, if Ghost Set a Watchman is the less successful first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird, the Gallagher book is the less successful first draft of Warrior's Gate. I think there's a lot to like about this 1980 adaptation. And you can see that he's a phenomenal writer, and he went on to much bigger and better things later on in his career. I prefer the TV version and the Lidecker novelization of the TV version to this, for reasons I've mentioned over the past hour. There's some very strong writing in here, but it's not quite there yet, and it takes that polish by Bidmead and Joyce to make it perfect, which it later becomes. But the two short stories at the end of the Bound version um, – Previously, we only had the Gallagher book on the John Culshaw audio. Now we have the two new short stories, and those really make this worthwhile. So those are the value-added material that makes this book a must-have. And it's a shame that the paperback edition is basically unavailable in the States right now. Amazon couldn't get enough copies and were canceling orders, so I had to read this on digital. But I will be getting the print version as soon as a copy makes its way across the pond. And far be it from me to disagree with you, Jason, for a change, but I think you're absolutely right. That sums it up for me. For me, the TV version will always be the version of Warrior's Gate, I think, through familiarity and just because it's 
a magnificent piece of TV in Doctor Who's best ever season. Um, but um, it was really lovely to to experience both books. Uh, I haven't read the Lidecker novelization probably since the late 80s, I suspect, was the last time I picked that up. So that was it was lovely to sit and read that in 45 minutes last night. <laughs> I can read very fast when I need to. And it, it just rattled along beautifully. And just to have these different versions of the same story, we're, we're, we're often spoiled as Doctor Who fans in having, having these things. And we, we kind of take it for granted because Doctor Who has always kind of given us these snapshots of roads not taken. It's such a well-documented show that we can see, we know about early drafts of things where things were changed and things that didn't quite make it to TV. But to have a book that didn't quite make it to to publication is something something new and and sort of beyond what where we've been before so um thank you very much to the bbc and to to the um to the sort of new target books um imprint really from penguin because it's really lovely to have have that on the shelf as well and it might not be something that i will dip into a lot in the future but i'm very glad it's there yes absolutely here, here. So there we go. So we have come across the different striations of time zones to come together. And so um, if people are looking for us, um, where can we find you? So Denise, where can we find you online? You can find me mainly on Twitter as at cup of tea 69. Um, I'm also on Mastodon and Blue Sky, but I haven't really done very much on either of those things recently and uh that's basically me i don't get mm-hmm. out much and Fraser? um well when i'm not sort of haunting the moldy old banqueting halls of of you're looking for someone's pickle to steal you will also find me on twitter as at felix fraser or one word fraser with a z um you'll find us cropping up on other podcasts here there and everywhere um but twitter Twitter, not X, is where you will find me predominantly. And Jason? You can find me wandering through a white void, tossing a coin, trying to make my way back to what used to be Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, at DR Who Novels. I'm primarily now on the Doctor Who Literature podcast, which is weekly. Denise was recently on Doctor Who Literature as a guest, cavelling over State of Decay. Fraser was recently a guest um, trailing over the Dominators, and Cy will be a guest in the next episode that I record after this, Doctor Who Literature, episode 91, Frontios, featuring Cy Hart. Hopefully, trailing over Frontios, which is another one of my mm-hmm. favorite Christopher H. Binmead stories, coming soon on Doctor Who Literature. And me, you will find me on Twitter as I'm at Cy underscore Hart. You can also find me now on Blue Sky, where I am dabbling my toes gently into the into this new place as at Cy Hart, all one word. And as many people have commented, you'll find me on any Doctor Who podcast that will invite me on. <laughs> <laughs> and many episodes of Trap One, um, where I'm always glad to be back as a host and a guest. And of course, you can find Trap One as at Trap One underscore on Twitter and Mastodon. And 
You can find us also on Blue Sky as well, I believe. So, yeah, we're covering all the social media bases. So join us again for another Trap One soon, where we'll be looking at another recent release or re-release from the worlds of Doctor Who. So thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. 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 Goodbye.